0: promised myself I'd never write another novel. The last one I attempted was So Shit, I had a breakdown. I switched from fiction to poetry because poems were shorter and quicker to write. And also the standard was lower because a lot of poets are shit. After a few years, I started to get warning signs. Ideas, characters, fragments of Fictional scenes. So I went to my then-girlfriend like she was a priest and I was confessing. Forgive me, Father. Recently I've found myself experiencing... urges. I think... I want to write a novel. And, like priests down the ages, her solution was to offer... a displacement activity. She said, well why don't you go and do some research? Research was great because it allowed me to put off writing properly and writing properly would be admitting to myself that I wanted this, that writing a novel and doing it well was something that mattered to me, that I would care if I failed, that if I failed that would be somehow within my life a loss. I was so scared of pinning down all the beautiful multicoloured butterflies flitting around my mind only to render them dead and grey and brittle i knew i wanted my book to be set in england in 1935 so i started reading around the era books about the upper classes and fascism and uh, new age mysticism and gamekeeping and gun dog breeding and wildlife i visited stately homes the Norfolk countryside. I, I I took shooting lessons. I didn't even really know what I was looking for specifically. I just hoped that if I immersed myself in this world, in this era, ideas and good prose would just sort of ooze out of me. That um. That didn't happen. Research is fractal. The more you find out, the more you find there is to find out. The more you realise just how ignorant you are. The great myth of our information age is that all knowledge is at our fingertips. That if I want to know what month haystacks would appear in Norfolk in 1935 and how long they stayed out and exactly how they were constructed and what they looked like, all I have to do is type haystacks, Norfolk, 1935 into Google and WAMO, Google shit the desired data straight into my brain mouth six months six fucking months it took me just to find out the answer to that one question via some dude in in Rio who once worked on a farm till I finally stumbled stumbled upon this reprint of uh, batshit right-wing food historian Dorothy Hartley's account of traveling around rural England in the mid-30s it had the information I needed but by then I wasn't sure if the haystack scene was going to stay in the novel. (laughs) Look, if you're writing a story about, let's say, Knuckles the Echidna having a threesome with grown-up Ron Weasley and uh, Goku out of Dragon Ball Z, then yes, my friend, the internet is a fast and terrifyingly accurate scholarly tool. If not, then you're going to have to resort to smelly, cobwebby old books. And let me tell you, the signal-to-noise ratio in those big, big, lump-so-tree is crazy low. For every book I read in the name of research, I, I found maybe one sentence of pertinent information that might have some application to the book I was writing. So for every useful sentence you're reading, oh, I don't know how many sentences there are in a book, say 100 useless sentences... So your head just puffs up with unwanted information. So, for example, I read an entire chapter of Diagrams showing the spread of shotgun pellets in this book about wildfowling guns. While I was on the beach in Spain, ostensibly on my honeymoon with my new wife, I could fill this entire episode explaining why different shotguns throw different patterns of pellet over different ranges. Don't worry, I won't. I'm not a monster and because as you'll know if you're a gun expert the answer is boring I I mean no, no the answer is like literally boring The tighter the boring of the barrel the more concentrated the pellets allowing them to maintain a more coherent pattern over longer distances the debate over which boring is the best boring has raged in the shotgun community for over a century as it turns out with one camp favoring tight boring and the other wide boring but i won't go into that now because it's a little um suffice to say i was thrilling company on that honeymoon and my marriage goes from strength to strength. And that is the danger of research, not just that it ruins marital bliss, but you get sucked into these bizarre niche worlds that not only make your soulmate crave the sweet release of death, but would actively make your novel worse if you included them in full. Do you go to fiction to learn about the difference between full and half-choke boring? No, me neither. I really don't. I don't. I've got no interest in those things. When someone starts talking about that to me at a gathering, the interaction instantly transforms from a conversation into a hostage situation. But research has got like this pull, this draw, this terrifying gravity. I, I went to Norwich Library to fact check a detail about stables and horse breeding and I ended up losing an entire day to reading about artificial horse vaginas. There are, of course, four main genres of uh, artificial horse vagina. The heavy-duty Colorado style, which retains water temperature longer in cold weather, is more durable under, quote, extreme use, end quote, and allows the stallion to ejaculate clear of the heated liner, thereby avoiding danger of sperm damage by heat shock. Of course, if you're wanking stallions on a budget, the Missouri model could be a match made in artificial horse vagina heaven. It allows for the addition of air to make the liner grip tighter and requires less manual stimulation of the penis than other models. I'm not sure whether that's a pro or a con, I suppose it depends on your proclivities. If those two sound a little bit cumbersome, then why not introduce a bit of gallic panache to your horse tossing with the French model, lightweight and with an adjustable latex hood this artificial horse vagina can accommodate various lengths of stallion penis. The hood also stimulates the glands, very considerate of it, aiding your collection of that sweet, sweet foal juice. Too vintage? Sound a bit day class? A? Why not try the futuristic Roanoke model developed by Roanoke AI laboratories for future reference? If somebody tells you they work in an AI lab, they're probably not working on self-aware robots but artificial insemination. Roanoke AI's slogan is, quote, one of the oldest and most trusted names in the cryopreservation of stallion sperm. This space... <laughs> which I, I know, so that that slogan, I'm afraid, is gone if you were hoping to use it. This space-age artificial horse vagina can be operated with one hand while its shortness allows manual stimulation of the upper shaft of the penis for a cheeky double tease. It truly is the HAL 9000 of artificial horse vaginas. But look, as eye-opening as it was to read about a facility for storing 30,000 cubic litres of frozen zebrages, that information didn't have an immediate application for an interbellum gothic meditation on the horrors of war. Some writers... I'm looking at you, In McEwen. Use every single bit of research they come across. No pun intended there. Like McEwen, he would have blasted his scenes of middle-class straight people having very, very slow divorces from top to bottom with horse spunk had he read those books. Its hue, viscosity and temperature described in lavish, strangely tedious middle-brow detail. It is one of the greatest sadnesses of my life that no horse vaginas, artificial or au natural, made it into Minor novel, the Honours, but I suppose they are implied, in a sense, by the very mention of horses, which are in turn implied by stables. So it is fair to say that the echo of horse vaginas rings through the entire production. Life, desire, the void. Invisible, but ever-present. I think you'll agree it's actually quite an elegant motif. But, if you will permit me to mix my metaphors, artificial horse vaginas are just one of hundreds of rabbit holes I tumbled down in my quest for historical veracity. Like, I know so many mushrooms. Seriously, like, if you're listening now and you'd like to give this whole writing lark up, which I, I dare say after hearing that much information about artificial horse vaginas, um... You may well want to. Um, we could form an Assassin's Guild. Uh, my only criteria is that we all take our aliases from different fungi. Look, I am well up for it. So you can choose your Assassin name from Amethyst Deceiver, Velvet Shank, Destroying Angel, Slippery Jack, Funeral Bell, Candle Snuff, Death Cap. I'll simply be known as The Miller. As the months rolled by, I, I was getting obsessed. I wasn't writing a word, but my goodness, was I researching things. And and the worst part of all this is that I've actually got a terrible memory. In the art of fiction, Henry James advises aspiring writers, try to be one of those people on whom nothing is lost. My advice to Henry James is try not to look like a pillow with a face drawn on it. But who is that anyway? Who is one of the people on whom nothing is lost. No one I know. I lose everything. Even making notes, I retain like 1% of 1% of whatever I read, leaving these isolated, useless nubs of trivia in a sea of ignorance. So like after reading three books on British trees, I can identify precisely one tree. I can identify a Scots pine, right? So if I see a Scots pine, I'll be like, hey dude, there's a Scots pine. That's it. That is the one tree I can recognise. The rest are gone. I I can fake a knowledge of trees by only ever mentioning Scott's pine, only ever pointing them out and then pretending that's like the tip of the iceberg. And I could talk about the other trees, but I just particularly chose that one because it's my favourite. It's the only one I can recognise. I've got these sudden gobbits of knowledge, totally without context, that every now and then... I like weirdly run into and remember I know so like I was playing the uh disappointing marginally racist sequel BioShock Infinite and I I looked down at the protagonist's hand and I was like oh I say he's holding the Broom handle Mauser or the C12 to give it its official military designation classic pistol of the interwar years recognizable by the iconic grip and the box magazine that holds 10 7.63 mm rounds some were chambered for 9 mm Parabellum but they helpfully have a big red 9 carved into the grip. The C12 is notable for featuring one of the most um, interesting design choices of the 20th century, um, which is that halfway through production of the pistol, they decided to reverse the positions of the safety catch on it. So newer models uh, have up as safe and down as ready, meaning that unless you're very certain of the year of production... C12s don't come with a safety catch, so much as a lucky dip mode. But that is it. That's my entire gun knowledge. That's my one gun I can recognize. Oh, it's a broom handle Mauser. And I mean, in that particular case to be fair, I am at peace with that. I don't want to know all the guns. You've you've met someone before who knows all the guns, right? Happy people don't know all the guns, but I expected to learn so much from my research. I I thought it would be this enhancing, enriching process that would make me a genius. But I'm so crap. I'm I'm not an expert at anything at all. I, I can just point and name a few specific objects like someone recovering from a stroke. Oh, is that a pine martin? I say... It's a photograph of Ramsay MacDonald. And this went on for two years. Two years of researching during which my word count, the actual number of words of fiction I had written of my proposed novel, ran to zero. And I mean, on one level, I, I thought I was happy with that, you know, wasn't I? I mean, I felt like I was achieving something. I was reading books, even though I was forgetting almost everything i learned i mean when people talk about having a memory like a sieve i feel like research for me is like that you can hold and retain the information for only so long before it drains out all the holes in your gray matter but at least and i think this was the key at least i hadn't committed myself to actually writing the novel at least i hadn't tried and failed have you ever done that you know tried your very your absolute best given something you're all something that you really care about and failed um in the summer of 2011 i had this run of gigs that saw me away from home for seven weeks on the trot more almost eight in fact i went from england to edinburgh to australia and i got to sydney in the seventh week and I was still jet lagged and I've been touring and touring and I was baffled and and nothing seemed real. As this colonised nation for people from England, Australia is so weirdly familiar with loads of splats of recognisable British culture and yet so different which gives it the quality of a fever dream like all the burger kings are exactly the same except they're called hungry jacks i felt like someone was playing a prank on me it's such a weird small thing and it's and it's bright there and it's sunny and it's and it's gorgeous yet every now and then you get these little semi-conscious reminders that you're standing on the site of cultural and literal genocide now add to this I, i wasn't in a good space, mental health-wise. I was walking around the streets of Melbourne at one point with my headphones in, listening to a lot of, a lot of Bell and Sebastian. Happy people don't listen to Bell and Sebastian. Nobody, no, you're never in a good place if you're in your life if you're doing that. You really, really aren't. And look, I, yeah, okay, like maybe, it probably, it may well sound to you breathtakingly whingy, for me to talk about feeling low or to try and paint myself as I'm going to victim or uh, or a sympathetic protagonist in this situation. When I, w- I was getting to be a professional performer, right? I was spending this summer doing, living the dream. You know, it sounds like I didn't know I was born. I was going out. I was going to festivals every weekend. I was doing gigs every day. And now for the first time, I was touring the world doing my shows, right? What did I have to be sad about? But of course, mental health doesn't work quite like that. You can feel absolutely miserable and alone and terrified and yet have no obvious reason for it. But uh, on the other hand, I hadn't had a great time in Edinburgh. This is the thing about doing anything creative is a lot of creative behind the scenes things go badly they they, you know you don't promote the things that are going badly you don't talk about it on Facebook or Twitter or you don't send it out in your newsletter and so we all have a completely false sense of what someone's doing and because everyone's lying to each other or at least because everyone's presenting a false idealized self when things do go wrong you think it's aberrant and it produces shame and you hide it which means you don't seek help i I'd had a tricky time at the fringe you know the fringe for those of you who don't know it runs for four weeks and um my audience numbers had been all right my reviews had been pretty bad and i don't think unfairly pretty bad they they were just saying that it really wasn't for me you know they were actually the worst thing about the reviews was that a lot of them had a tone of like Poor old Tim. He seems like a nice bloke. Stand-up's not for him, is it? It's a real fe- It was like it was like they were it's like they were punching a lamb that very badly needed to be put down. I was doing like three or more full shows a day and guest slots and and you know, maybe I should have guessed that I was heading for trouble when A journalist from the BBC came to interview me while I was sitting outside on the streets of Edinburgh in a refurbished burger van writing free poems for strangers and she asked me a bunch of questions and after a while I asked her what the piece she was writing was going to be about and she said, people who burn out at the Edinburgh Fringe. I was drinking heavily every day. Like so many people doing the Fringe, um, it ended up costing me a huge amount of money and that was money I, I didn't have. And all of it was my choice. Like I'm not, I kind of, it was my choice, right? All of that. I would actually, you know, it's, it's something I built up to over the year. and I was spending time away from home and I was saying, please give me this time. And I, I, I you know, I wasn't able to work while I was doing it. So I wasn't even earning money, but I'd done it to myself. You know, I'd done it to myself and in Sydney, I met up with an old friend I hadn't seen since Sixth Form, who'd moved out there and was running this beautiful ornamental candle shop and she let me go in and kind of like dip some candles myself and she seemed really chilled out and, you know, grown up. And we went for a coffee and she was like, so what are you doing with your life? And I looked around the room and I was still, you know, almost like hallucinating from jet lag and I... I didn't know it was what I was going to say until I said it, but I said, I don't know. And the moment I said that, I knew it was true. Later that day, I I walked down to the Botanical Gardens in Sydney and I sat by the edge of the water, about 100 metres from the Sydney Opera House. And I sat on a bench and I put my head in my hands and I just started sobbing. I, I imagined, I think, in that moment, that it was going to be incredibly cathartic. And I would release something and I would be all right. But actually, it was just wet. And eventually, it was a bit embarrassing because people were walking past and I felt self-conscious. So I sort of got up and I I wiped my eyes and and I started walking into the gardens along these kind of winding pathways through big trees. And I followed one path and then another, not really caring where I was going, just walking to walk, you know, to be alone Uh, until eventually I, I came to this crossroads. And above me, sunlight was winking through the branches of these great dark trees called ironbarks. And as I sort of looked up above the path where I was walking, I saw that the branches were heavy with these thick, leathery black fruits. And as I kept going, I looked around and at first I saw sort of five, and then I saw 20, then 100, then 200, like giant inverted umbrellas. And then I realised, there weren't fruits, They were bats. I'd wandered into a part of the gardens filled with hundreds and hundreds of giant bats. Now, now in my defence, as, as you will know if you wear spectacles and are given to weeping heavily, uh, when you cry while wearing glasses, salt crusts on the lenses and makes it hard to see. So my eyesight had been mildly impaired by the experience of being sad, but it was too late. I was surrounded. I I, I looked back and every path out had dozens of giant bats hanging extremely low over it, sleeping. And I froze. I had to get out. I was suddenly terrified, but I I couldn't see anywhere to go that I wouldn't pass them and risk waking them. And then over by the roots of one of the great trees, I saw this old Japanese gardener with his back to me, raking leaves. He he wore a blue tiki shirt and he had this short white beard. And he and he turned. And he must have seen my fear because he glanced up from his work. Then he then he smiled this warm, gentle smile with his whole face. You know, you've seen people do that when they smile with their whole face. And he like he turned and he rested his rake against the tree and beaming he walked towards me with his arms spread. And in that moment I knew I was going to be okay. Then he clapped his hands. BAM! 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 And all the bats went whoosh and started swooping round my head as they took off and I ran. I pegged it, bats flying everywhere and the last thing i saw as i glanced back was him laughing his ass off i don't know if you've encountered flying foxes technically known as mega bats but they are they're fucking terrifying they are the world's largest bats they have a wingspan of over 2 meters and when they fly they look so unhappy they they don't look like they want to be up there it look they, they, like it's like they know that they're eldritch abominations. I was not meant to be. They stare down at you accusingly, like it's your fault, like they just want you to kill them. And, and so don't get me wrong, I I, I, I I like flying foxes as a concept. I want them to be happy and prosperous and to be looked after, but just very, very far away from me and my face and my hair. I used to think that inspiration was a butterfly, this beautiful thing that you had to track down. But maybe inspiration is a beast, and if you want to catch it, maybe the best way, perhaps the only way, is to lay traps, be very still, and wait. Sure, you can oil the hinges to make sure they spring right. Boil them to get rid of the scent of humans. Maybe add some tempting bait. But after that, what you really need is patience. And as I ran from those monsters in a strange land, I didn't realise it. But I'd finally caught something. When I got back to England, I started writing. And of course, in combination with a heap more research, those sentences became my first published novel, The Honours. So, I'd like to close by, in classic Death of a Thousand Cuts tradition, reading you the first page of my debut novel, The Honours. I worked hard on it. I made mistakes. I got feedback. I redrafted. I hope very much that it walks that tightrope between over-meticulous verisimilitude And making shit up. The girl with the gun crouched waiting. The dark shape hung over the belt of poplars, then banked, swooping out across the salt marsh. It was coming nearer. She braced a knee against the wet wall of the trench. The monster pumped its black wings, ragged, impossible. Curls of samphire crunched beneath her elbow as she brought the gun to her cheek. The wind lifted old book smells off the mudflats. Kidney-shaped pools shone copper and gold. She mouthed the old lesson like a spell, falling into Mr Garforth's quiet, steady rhythm. To kill a bird, I must first ascertain its speed and trajectory. To do this, I follow it with the muzzle of the shotgun. She tilted the barrels up and began tracking a spot a yard behind her target. She could hear the thing panting. When I have ascertained its speed and trajectory... I'd bring the gun past smoothly. Any longer and it would see her. Her index finger twitched over the two triggers, dithering between full and half choke. She held her breath and brought the gun up too fast. Stopped, waited, let the muzzle fall back in behind her target. She counted to three, tried again. This time, she swung the gun in one clean movement. If I miss the bird, if I miss, I will miss it in front. She continued past what instinct told her was the sweet spot. The gun kicked. A flock of Brent geese took off in a rippling blast, their voices like starter motors. Dark bodies and white undertails confetted the air. Delphine lowered the gun. She thumbed the locking lever and broke the barrel. The breech coughed a spent cartridge into the soft mud at her feet. She pressed her heel on the empty case until it sank. She reloaded. The sky was red and empty. She hauled herself out of the trench. On the edge of a small crescent pool lay a smashed umbrella. As she got closer, it resolved into knuckled wings, cola black fur, a sharp oval face like a weasel's. The creature was about three feet tall, its huge shot-shredded wings veined and translucent like the membranes of a leaf. She prodded it with the shotgun. The clump of sedge at its cheek shivered. She pressed the gun to its ribs and nudged it into the pool. Its huge wings settled across the surface. It floated. In the light of the setting sun, its fur blazed silver. She poked it in the belly. Cloudy water puddled through the holes in its wings. The puddles began joining up and, bit by bit, the creature sank. Its splayed ears, its closed eyes, the bright ring winking on its clenched finger. Delphine gazed into the face of death and did not feel afraid. Maybe it was the after effects of the tranquilizer. Maybe it was the thought of her father and the monsters waiting back at the hall. The shotgun felt heavy and good. She was going to kill them all.